0: Hello Overlake. Hello Overlake. You guys look very hopeful today. Uh, It's good to see you. Go ahead and grab your notes out of your handout and you can see we're going through a series this December called A Thrill of Hope and uh, today the title of the message is Hope Restored. And, um, you know, I thought most of us are not thinking about the process of restoration or what it takes to restore unless maybe that's your job. Maybe you're working in construction or carpentry and and uh, you do on, you know, sort of periodically restoration projects. Maybe you work at restoration hardware, which I understand is the decor style of choice in eternity, uh, which I'm excited about for that. Um, uh, but most of us are not thinking about restoration very often, this process of being restored. So we want to start with a definition, what it looks like to restore. And, uh, and, and it's a verb, it means to return something, especially a work of art or a building, to an original or former condition. So for example, um, they restored the Sistine Chapel, restoring it to its original glory. Uh, Two, to bring back to health good spirits, uh, etc., restore your health. Three, to return something lost or stolen to its owner. Now, I I hope you're probably seeing some theological implications from all this. Um, Four, to reintroduce or reinforce, to restore discipline, or in this case, to restore hope. And five, to reconstruct, like an extinct animal, former landscape, uh, to, to rebuild, So last week, we talked about hope, and we defined what hope was. It was that yearning, that that looking forward, that eager anticipation of the arrival of something, some event, or someone, if you remember that. That's what hope was last week. Today, we're talking about the restoration process. Why would we need to restore hope? Well, it's because of life. Right, It's because the circumstances of our life, they work against our hope. And, and we live in very obviously less than ideal circumstances. And we see it in our families and we see it in our own hearts. We see it in the world at large. And these events, these circumstances knock against our, our hope. They, they bash it. They batter it. They, they cause uh, hope to sink, if you will. And, uh, and so then we're in need of restoring it. I found a few uh, visual images this week, some pictures floating around the internet, things that restore our hope. The first picture is um, a little boy and his, his parents built him a, a, a costume, a Halloween costume. Now this little boy is wheelchair bound, um, but they built him a little ice cream. Yeah, did you guys, Oh, can we do that together? Oh. That's so cool, right? That restores hope. Uh, next picture, a couple of tattoos that parents got on their bellies that simulated the insulin pump that their son had installed. So it just kind of unified that family. Can I get it all? All. That's nice. And then the last picture is just a kitten. <laughs> Because there's just something about kittens that, that do something to our hearts. And whole, you know, internet industries about, you know, kittens doing cute things and playing with cute toys and being in cute teacups. And, and I just don't get it because you guys know this, right? Kittens grow up to be cats. Uh, so it's just uh, not working for me. What I wanted to do, though, is I wanted to give you something tangible to look at. and So, so up uh, here, we've got a boat. This is a uh, 14-foot, it's a rowboat built in 1954. It's called the On Top, and uh, the reason why it's called the On Top is because it was originally designed to go on top of your car. You could haul it around, you know, put on your Rambler or your 57 Chevy, although not for three years because this is 54. Uh, But anyway, uh, but my buddy Mike found this rowboat, And he has begun to restore it. And now the thing is, I don't know if you can see, but there's actually light that shines through the bottom, right? This this is not seaworthy right now. You can see the fronts, you know, it's not totally put together right now. And so this is not something that would float Mike. This is not something that Mike would invite his family into. It's not something that he would trust his life to right now. That's why he's restoring it. And what he's doing is he's, he's using cedar planks to rebuild the exterior. He's, he's redoing the interior ribbing. And he's doing it in two ways. He's, he's trying to resuscitate as much of the original wood as he can so that he's restoring the actual wood itself. And then he's also grafting in the new material so that it will be something that is sturdy, something that he's able to, to use to enjoy and to invite his family into, etc. And, and you can see then where we're going in, in this analogy because the, the truth is that our hope, it gets dashed against the rocks of life. And our hope gets holes knocked into it, and and it, it has, um, it suffers the damage of the waves and the storms that we face, and the exposure to the difficulties of life, and and so our our hope gets holes knocked in it. And it begins to sink, and even some of us find ourselves bailing as fast as we can, but it's not something that we can trust our lives to. It's not something that we can invite our family and friends into. And friends, this is why we need to restore hope. And so what I want to do today is unpack a passage of Scripture. It's, it's a passage that is um, not typically read during the Christmas season, but it has everything to do with Christmas, And it has everything to do with the restoration of our hope. And the author of this passage is the Apostle Paul. He was writing a letter to the church in Galatia. This was, most scholars agree with the authorship and the date of its composition, that it was written roughly 51, 53 AD, about 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, the reason why this is interesting is because the Apostle Paul, he would have known Mary, the mother of Jesus, and even if he hadn't known her well, he would have spent a lot of time with the disciple named John, because Paul spent time with all the disciples, spending time with the disciple of John, who, if you'll recall, John invited Mary into his life and treated her as his own mom if you remember that. And so so Paul had this insight into Mary and into the events of the birth of Jesus, and and because the disciples and Mary, the life of Jesus, and, and then the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And this is about 20 years after those events, and he's looking back at what is most significant about it. And that's what he's writing. And he's speaking to a Roman culture, a Greek culture. And we're just going to read the passage and then we'll unpack it sort of line by line. He he says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. So again, let's begin to unpack it. We'll just start at the beginning. He begins, when the set time had fully come. And friends, we speak about this a lot. God knows when the appropriate time is. That in the fullness of time, some of your translations say, at just the right moment other translations say. What what I want you to see is that God sees it all, that God sees how everything is impacting everything else. He understands the plan as history rolls forward. He knows exactly when the right time is, and we can trust him with that. And, And even that truth in itself becomes an opportunity to restore our hope. Because, friends, we think we know when God should act. We think we know when God needs to move. And we cry out to God from the midst of our circumstance. And this is an opportunity for us to trust that God knows when just the right time is. That God sees a bigger picture than we see. And he knows, you know, much more. 360 degrees is God's knowledge. And we only see a little piece. And so we can trust that God knows when just the right time is. Is. And, and that's what Paul says. When, when the time had fully come, the set time, he said, God sent his son. This is Messiah. This is the anointed one of God, the long awaited one, the one that, that prophecies had pointed to for hundreds of years, the coming of the chosen one of God. Emmanuel. God coming near, right? Emmanuel means God with us. This is not God loving us from a distance. This is God coming near. There was this old song. I, I, I don't even remember who sang it, or but it was like from a distance. God is watching. God is watching us from a distance. Sorry, I won't do it. But it's like, um, the, you know. Oh, how hopeful it is to think that God is observing us from a distance. And what the scripture says is that's not hope at all. Hope is God not remaining at a distance, but choosing to cross that distance and to come and be with us. That's what Paul's saying. At just the right time, God sent his son. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus. This is God in the bod, right? This is God in the flesh. And then he says, born of a woman. Born of a woman. Now, that's not very interesting to say if Paul's talking about you or if he's talking about me. All of us have that in common. All of us are born of a woman. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is that Paul's talking about the Son of God. And so this is that, that moment of ultimate mystery, right? Obviously, we're, we're now entering into the very miraculous. I mean, this is the crux of all miracles right here. That, that, that the Lord of the universe sends his son born of a woman. And, and, and our problem is thousands of years of poetry have sort of diluted the incredible mystery of this. Right? I I would venture to to say that so many of us have, you know, the, the, the wood carving of the nativity in our home right now. And we've got, you know, the the whole thing. We've got the angel that that we hang on the top of the stable. And we've got, you know, the three wise men and their three wise camels. And we've got um, all of the barnyard animals around the feeding trough. And they're, you know, Joseph and Mary, and they're looking serene. And, and, And we've all seen way too many porcelain babies in porcelain feeding troughs over the years, right? And we just... We've lost something of of the wonder and the majesty of, of the Lord of the universe coming and being born to this young mom named Mary. Born of a woman, and then Paul says, born under the law. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus was born under the Mosaic law, the law that had originated through uh, Moses, God had given through Moses, and it was the same legal structure that had existed for hundreds and hundreds of years um, with all of its requirements for holiness and with all of its... Um, opportunities that God had given the people of Israel to to atone for their sins through the various sacrificial system that he had given. And what we see in Jesus is Jesus is born under the law, fulfilling all of its requirements. So Jesus himself said, I have not come to abolish the law, he says, but to fulfill it. And what Jesus lived, the choices that Jesus made, it was in perfect submission to his Father's will, and and he fulfilled all of righteousness. He lived the life that, that everyone is required to live. Christ lived it perfectly, obediently. He was born under the law, and he fulfilled that. But it was for a purpose. See, Paul says to redeem those under the law. Well, that's you and that's me, right? This is where it begins to get interesting for us because Christ was able to perfectly fulfill the law. Now, you and I, we are being redeemed by Jesus from under the law. And, 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 And what I want to do is unpack that because Maybe you've not heard this. Some of us, we've, we've talked about this before, Overlake. We know that this is a part of the conversation we have. But God, God is perfect, and God has given us his law so that we might live the best life we can possibly live. And he's communicated that to us. Hey, this is how you do it. We're the ones that have rebelled against God. We're the ones who have broken his laws. And then anytime you break a law, something is owed. So just think about this for a moment. Um, I just finished sending off a, uh, a, a, a check yesterday I was paying bills, a check to this district court, you know, Redmond office. Um, I won't tell you which one of us, my wife or I, was the incurrer of this particular infraction, which had to do with moving vehicle and cell phone usage. But um, <laughs> I, I, I did, I, for the sake of, hypothetically, what I'm trying to say is When you break the law, something is owed, okay? Now, this is true even with our own laws, right? God has laws that we break. We're like, oh, that seems unfair. Look, we have laws that we break. They're called New Year's resolutions. (laughs) Next year, so so just imagine a few weeks ahead, 2014 rolls around, and you're like, this year, I am going to work out every day. On January 2nd, you're like, I owe myself a workout from yesterday. (laughs) By the end of the month of January, you owe yourself 47 workouts that you have not yet accomplished. I'm not good at the math here, but what I want you to see is if you break your own law, guess what you owe? You owe yourself a workout. Are Are you following me? Let me, let me even use another analogy. Let's just say that the, the, the law of your car is that you would put in uh, 89 octane gas into your car. That's the law. That, that's what will help it run best because, again, all God's laws are for us to, to run best in this life. So, so just the idea that, oh, you're supposed to put in a certain octane of gas into your gas tank. That will help it run best. But you don't put in 89 and you don't put an 87 octane, Um, you put Dijon mustard into your gas tank. Just on a whim. You're rebellious. What happens? Your car's broken and someone has to pay to fix it. Are you following me? Every time a law is broken, something must be paid. And here we have Jesus, Paul says, to redeem those under the law. What's he talking about? Redeem, that means to, to trade for, to, to pay for. If you have a coupon, you spend that coupon in redemption of goods for yourself. And, and so that is, it, what Jesus has done, he's done to play that role of redemption, to be the redeemer. Because he perfectly fulfilled the law He had no reason to pay on his own behalf, and so he came to pay on your behalf and on my behalf. And and I want you to see, friends, that there are some laws that are broken that we simply cannot pay. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Maybe some of you are not in your first marriages, but you know that in your first marriage you made some mistakes, you did some things wrong, you handled things poorly, and you look back on some of those days and you're thinking, you know what, I owe something in that first marriage, but it's too late. I can't pay that. Maybe some of you as parents, you've broken parenting laws and, and you're thinking to yourself, as you think about your parenting, you're like, you know what, I I. I I owe it to my kids to be there for them in their elementary school years. I owe it to my kids to be, to be that present mom, that not distracted mom, that present dad, that not absent father, and, and yet I can't pay it back because they're grown now. And there's nothing I can do to go back in time and make it right. And, and some of you are on the other side of that. You're thinking, you know what? Somebody owes me A childhood. Because of what happened to me, the circumstances, the way I was abused, the way I was assaulted. Somebody owes me because a law was broken against me. Are you tracking with me? And I'm simply saying that there are some things, laws that are broken, things that we owe, that we cannot repay. It's impossible. And that's how it is with God. Because his standard is righteousness, whole in his perfection our rebellion has, has come so often and runs so deep, and, and there is no way we can pay on our own. And so God did it for us. God came near in the person of Jesus Christ, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, to, to pay the penalty. On the cross of Calvary, he took all of our sin and rebellion on himself and he paid the price for your sin and for my sin. We're all in the same boat. He paid the price for our sin. He redeemed us from our sin so that we might be declared not guilty, so that we might be declared, um, they owe me nothing, God says. That bill has been paid, and that's good news, friends. That, that is the gospel, and that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus has come to redeem us so that the law no longer condemns us even though we are lawbreakers. Jesus stands as judge and jury even though we owed a debt that we could not pay. Jesus says, I will pay it for you, and even though our sin had distanced ourselves from God, God says, I will cross that distance, and, and God came near in Christ, and even though my sins are as scarlet, Jesus says, I will make them white as snow, and that's the good news, right? That, that is the gospel story, and so our hope, which has been dashed because of our choices and our selfishness and our rebellion and our shame, is now restored, why? Because Jesus Has redeemed us. And as good as that is, and as beautiful as that is, I want you to understand that as Paul's writing this passage, he's just getting started. Because all of the language at this point is still very transactional. It's still very legal. It's still very, uh, here's a judge and you owe him what you cannot pay. So he gets off his bench and he comes down and he pays the fine for you. And now you are free and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you are not guilty before the Lord. And it's very courtroom. Are you tracking with me? And that's wonderful. It's good for us to get our minds around that. But that's not the full story. Because if you're in that moment, and you're viewing God as the judge who has come down and paid the, the fine, and now you no longer have to pay, you might think that you've gotten away with something. Uh, you might think, you know, you look at the judge who's now paid your fine, and you might think, well, I'm, I'm thankful for that judge. I'm glad I don't have to pay, and I'm glad he paid, and, and I might have a fondness for that judge, for the kindness that he's shown me, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to start hanging out at the judge's house on weekends. Playing lawn darts, you know, it's not—it's not, it's not going to go much further than that. You're free to go, he might say, and we might go. So what Paul's doing is he's sort of changing the language in this moment, and and he's saying um, there is more to this story. Look at verse four and five. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Why? That we might receive adoption to sonship. See, it's not enough from God's perspective that you are forgiven, that my debt is paid What God is saying is, I want a relationship with you. And Paul's saying, look, as I look back and and I I have walked with the Lord and I've interviewed the disciples and I've spent time with Mary, I am convinced that what is most important about the birth and the life and the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ is this, that yes, We are forgiven, and yes, we are redeemed, and yes, we are declared not guilty before a good and awesome and holy judge, but there's more, that God wants you to receive adoption into his family, that he wants you to understand that you are his son, that you're his daughter. Now, friends, I know many of you here are parents, and so you, you think sort of along those lines when I talk about sonship or, or being a daughter. And, and certainly you know that uh, Pastor Mike, I have three kids and I love them. And I, I use my kids often as sermon illustrations just because God has showed his love to me so often through them. Uh, but I, I, I just, if you'll indulge me for a few moments, I want to let you know. So my oldest is my daughter, Alexandra. And I'll never forget when Jody and I found out that we were having a girl, I was, I was so moved. And I was so excited about her arrival. And then when she was born, I've shared the story other times that she was taken from us right away and placed in the NICU. And we were not able to hold her for the first week of her life. And and, and I, I've told her often that it felt like when she, when she arrived into the world, it felt like my heart was being removed from my chest and now it existed externally to me. And that when she couldn't breathe in the NICU, I couldn't breathe either. And I, I, was, I was just emotionally, I mean, I, I didn't even know that kind of depth of emotion and care was, was possible until my daughter, Alex, arrived in the scene. And, and I love her. And she's beautiful and fierce and intelligent and strong. And it's just, she's just, I, I love. And yes, daddy is wrapped around her finger, but it's a good finger. And, and you know, I, I just, this unique relationship with Alex. And then my son, Caleb, he's, he's turning 12 this year. And, and Caleb and I speak the love language of pranking one another right now. And uh, in fact, just last week, um, well, let, let me tell you this. I, I hope this is not too much information, but when I was a, a student, st- you know, going through grad school, I, I would consider an all-nighter to be that night when I stayed up all night studying or, or cramming for a, an exam or, or something like that. But now that I'm in my mid-40s, um, I define an all-nighter as the night that I can sleep all night without getting up to go to the bathroom, Okay. <laughs> Uh, anybody with me? Uh, yeah, okay. So, um, and I, I, I pulled an all-nighter last night. <laughs> yes, you know, I was excited about that. So, um, earlier this week, uh, I, I did not. I, I was up at, at like four o'clock, and I, I went to use the restroom. I didn't turn any lights on, and um, I discovered that my son had taken, and I discovered, you see, uh, he had taken saran wrap and put it over the toilet bowl. Yeah, that's, that's, Clever boy. Uh, and then, it, like, uh, two mornings later, I wake up, and I go, and, and I shuffle in my in my closet, and I put my slippers on, and he had taken banana and squished them into the... T- yeah, <laughs> so, I, um, so I made his lunch, and I gave him Oreo cookies, but I scraped out the white center filling and put Colgate in... <laughs> And then that night I went to brush my teeth and realized he had put Tabasco sauce on my brush. (laughs) So if you, and I say this with humility, if you have a good prank for a 12 year old, please write it on your card (laughs) today. (laughs) I'm running out of ideas. And then my son, Doozy, and, and we've shared about Doozy before, but Doozy celebrated a, a birthday. And as we do, we have our family birthday dinner, and we, we all toast the birthday boy or girl. And, and so we toasted Doozy on Friday. Cheers to Doozy, the amazing and wonderful, the Doozy-licious, the nine-year-old inspiration of muscle and love, to Doozy Ezekiel Slammermeister Howerton, it is good to be in your family. And, and thank you for indulging me for a moment as I talk about each of my children, unique and very special to me. And our relationship is complicated. It's not a simple relationship. And yet each one of them absolutely is my very favorite uniquely and when I think about what limits I would cross, what, what distances I would journey, what, what barriers I would smash through in order to restore a relationship with them, in order to pursue them where they might wander, in order to work on their behalf for their benefit as a loving father, I just want you to see There are no limits, that the love is unconditional and it is for them and and I hope their heart is always for me but they need to understand my heart will always be for them and that is exactly how God feels about you. What Paul's saying is, look, it's not enough to think about your sins forgiven and your guilt removed, your shame wiped away. Those things are great and that's awesome but that's not the end of the story. Because the, the pinnacle of this thing is that the, the God of the universe, the one who made everything, he's our heavenly father. And he wants to communicate to us as son, as daughter. He wants us to relate to him in that way as well. For that, that we would speak in our love language to the Lord who loves us. And, and I want you to know that in, in the first century, adoption, which Paul speaks about, he says we were to receive adoption... In the first century, especially in the Greco-Roman society, adoption was a little bit different than it is today. And what I mean by that is that very, very often in Roman culture, adoption would take place as adults, that, that a family would adopt an adult son or an adult daughter into their, into their home, into their family life, into their, to their estate. And, you know, probably a few reasons for that. One is, is these, these wealthy, um, you know, Roman citizens, they would have wealth, they would have title, they would have lands, and they would look at their own spoiled children and they'd say, no way, I'm leaving my stuff to them, right? They're just going to squander it. Uh, you know, people with political d- dynasties even would look at their own children and say, uh, I can't trust my political legacy to my children. And again, it's an indictment of their parenting quite often, but it's like, um, it- it's this reality that, you know what, I, I want to see someone whose character I know, and I know their weaknesses, and I know their strengths, and I, and I know their ethic, and I want to choose them to adopt into my home. And this would happen often, and kind of the point of this is if if there are any of you here of wealth and means, and you have a state, and and you don't trust your children, I am open to being adopted by you. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. That's not the point. The point is that if you think about it, when you adopt a child, you adopt potential, but when you adopt an adult, you adopt what is known. God knows you. God knows you, I, I, I don't, and I'm just saying this, wherever you are in your life journey, God knows you senior. He knows you, you know, young adult. He knows you student. He knows you right in the middle of your family life. He, he, he knows you, everything about you. He knows what's great about you, the strength of your character, the, your humor, what's, what's fun and sparkling and magical about you. He knows all that. He knows where you slip up. He knows where you're prone to selfishness and rudeness and anger. He knows, he knows where, you, where you isolate, where you view the worst in others. He, he knows everything about you. And he says, and I choose you to be adopted into my family. I want you to be in my family. So that's the nature of the relationship that God wants with you. And so if you're here and you're a believer, then you also need to realize today that you are adopted by the Lord of the universe. He is your father. He refers to you as son or daughter. And if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, then I want you to understand that the invitation is on the table, not only to have your sins forgiven and your guilt removed, but so that you would understand you are not alone, that there is a God who loves you and desires to be your heavenly father. And the invitation is to be adopted into his family and to experience the love of many brothers and sisters. The invitation is to have your hope restored. And I imagine that the people in the church of Galatia, these these citizens in the Greco-Roman world, reading Paul's letter for the very first time, gasped in amazement i, I, I got to believe that they never, ever dreamed that God would want a relationship this loving with them. They just couldn't have conceived it. And then Paul continues. He says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And that's a mysterious reality as, as believers in Jesus, followers of his that, that the scripture says here in many other places that God now dwells within us, his spirit within, within each of us. And, and, and it's his spirit that enables us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a word that, that means father, but it, it means father in a very intimate sense. It, it's much better translated daddy or dad. And what's interesting to me, it's in Aramaic, Paul's writing this letter in Greek, but there is no Greek word that communicates what Abba communicates. And so he just uses the word Abba, he just puts it right there in the letter, because there, there's, there's nothing in the language that communicates that. It's like our English word taco, right? Or kindergarten, you realize that, that these are like words that we have, uh, we have used from other languages because we didn't have that word. In English, we were too lazy to think of another word. So we just didn't. It's taco, you know. Somebody's talking in Spanish, and they say the word taco. I know what they're saying. Like, ah, it's, I'm bilingual. But you're not. It's just the same, it's the same word, right? So, so Paul's writing, he says, look, I want to communicate something very intimate, I want to communicate this father idea, but in a a very intimate context, but Greek doesn't have the language for it. So I'm just going to say Abba. You know, the first time we see this in all of history, the first time we ever hear this word being used in Aramaic anywhere, any literature anywhere in the ancient world, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying so fervently that drops as of blood are falling, he's praying, Daddy, Dad, if you could take this cup from me, Dad, please. But even if you can't, Lord, it's, it's your will, not mine. Daddy, Dad. And that's the picture of intimacy that the Lord invites with you and with me. And it's so intimate, and I'm just confessing this, that for some of us, it's, it's uncomfortable for us. We, we would prefer a more reverential kind of a context. We would prefer more high church sort of approach. That we, that we would not lose any of the majesty and, and the pomp and circumstance, and even the distance perhaps, that, that this high church view of God, and that's fine. And there's a place, I, I want us to be a reverential family of God. But I also want you to understand what God himself is inviting. What he's inviting, what he's placing his Holy Spirit inside of our hearts is so that we might whisper, Abba, Daddy, Dad. And then he concludes in verse seven, he says, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. See, why does he, why does he say this? It's because a slave relates to a master based on rules and based on performance. And I say this because I think that's how some of us still relate to our Heavenly Father. We still relate to him based on rules and based on performance. A slave relates to master based on um, what they can do, what they can't do, how often they need to do these things, how well they need to do these things. Uh, You can go here, you can do this, this is out of bounds. And some of us still relate to our Heavenly Father just like that. But the invitation, the, the, the hope restoration process is that we would recognize that Jesus does not want to leave us as slaves, that Jesus redeems us, not merely so that we might be forgiven and declared not guilty, although that's a, a part of the story, but it's so that we might receive adoption the full rights of sonship, the full rights as daughters, that, that we might cry out to our heavenly father, Daddy, Dad. And I, I say all this because I, I don't know how you relate to God. How you relate to God is based on how much worth you think you are to God. <clears throat> so some of you... <clears throat> You relate to God as a slave owner because you think you're worth being a slave to God. Some of you, you relate to God as judge because you still think that he views you as a lawbreaker. That's how you relate. You don't know what you're worth to God. So I want you to understand today what you're worth to God. You're worth Christmas. But you're worth to God, you're worth his son, Jesus Christ, sent to earth, born of a woman, born under the law, born to redeem those under the law, so that we might be forgiven, yes, but so that we might receive adoption, the full rights of sons and daughters, and cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. The thrill of hope is, is from a song that many of us have sung many times, O Holy Night. And the words that many of us are familiar with, long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared, till, till Christ appeared, till Messiah came, the Son of God born of a woman, till he appeared, right? That our hearts yearning, seen. And then this line, and you've sung it a thousand times, but you've maybe never thought of it and the soul felt its worth till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You know what you're worth? You're worth Christmas. You're worth Christmas. I want you to hear the Lord of the universe say, you're worth Christmas to me. Jesus saying, you're worth me leaving heaven and coming to earth living a righteous life, dying a criminal's death, being resurrected from the grave, You're, you're worth all of that because I want you in the family of God. So how is it that we would restore hope? Well, I hope you would take these truths and I hope you would use them as the ribbing in the interior of the vessel that you sail on. I hope you take these truths and use them as a cedar planking around the exterior and you put them together tightly and you don't let these things go because I hope what you see as you take these truths with you today is that they will restore a hope that you can sail on, a hope that you can invite your family into, a hope that can withstand the storms as they come. What I'd love to do right now is I'd love to take a moment And pray with you. And if you're here today and you're a believer, then today is one of those days when I would encourage you to ask the Lord to help you take the next step in intimacy so that you would be able to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Dad. And maybe you're here today and you've never said yes to the invitation of being adopted. You've never said yes to becoming a son or a daughter of your heavenly father, then I would really encourage you today that, that you would take that step of faith and you would receive the love of Christ. So let's pray together. We know that you invite us to this, Jesus. We know it's the reason why you came. So we wanna say, Lord, would you continue your work in our hearts? We know when you look down on each and every one of us, you 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 know the whole story, that there's nothing hidden. There's nothing that we've hidden in the recesses of our hearts or lives, but you see it. You see the whole thing, and and in the midst of our our worst day, and in light of our best day, you say, "I am here to redeem you and forgive you of all your sin. I am here to declare you not guilty. That you owe nothing." before the Lord of the universe. But even more than that, I'm here to say that you can receive adoption into the family of God, that you can cry out to your heavenly Father, Dad, Daddy. So Lord, we ask that you would show us how we might walk in this road. If if we're already following you, Lord Jesus, just show us how that we might walk this with more intimacy, with more insight into your love for us. And God, if there are those here who have never said yes to that relationship, I pray that you'd give them the courage to step across the line of faith today. That they say, Jesus, we see how you've loved us and we want to follow you. Holy Spirit, do your work in each one of our lives. Do the heavy lifting and allow us to simply find ourselves faithful in you. We pray all this in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.